James chapter 1, verse 9 uh, to verse 18. Let's give our attentive hearing, uh, for this is God's word. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for calling us to worship you and now to receive your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear you, um, not to hear simply with our physical ears, to hear you with our hearts, so that our hearts would be changed, so that Lord, it would move towards you, love you, desire you, uh, and empower us to therefore, Lord, move uh, in a new direction uh, that pleases you. Um, Lord, bring forth change that you want to see in our lives through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we uh, started the book of James last week, and um, we saw how James opens up talking about Faith meeting real life. Faith meeting real life. And the first thing he brings to our attention as you think about how is your faith doing in real life is how are you doing in your trials? Um, Is there steadfast steadfast love for the Lord and, and genuine faith in the midst of your trials and therefore joy in your trials. And how he then says we need wisdom to see trials in that lens and, and to not doubt that is what you need and, and God grants us the wisdom that we need. Today's a very, I mean, it's very much a continuation of what he's been talking about in the earlier part of the chapter. To continue encouraging and instructing Christians to remain steadfast, remain faithful, Remain joyful in the midst of your trials. And James gets very practical um, in in talking about our our real faith in real life and and wisdom in action. What happens when we begin to look at life through the eyes of God's wisdom and therefore to see uh, more truly the way things are, the way we are, the way the world is. He shows us three things I want to focus on with you today. Through the eyes of wisdom, he leads us to see what is true richness. That's the first thing. What's true richness? Number two, what is true 
blessedness. And number three, what is true goodness? Okay, what is true richness, blessedness, and goodness? These three, all right? So point number one, true um, richness. Like I said, he laid out the principles um, in the earlier part of the passage about trials and genuine faith. And now he's leaning in further. He's, he wants to get really practical and even more, get in your business. So what does he talk about? He talks about money. He talks about your relationship with your money. James lists two general financial circumstances that we experience in life. The lowly, which is to say you know, those in poverty, those who are poor, and the, the rich, those who are wealthy. And the, the interesting thing is that they're both under trial, a trial of their own. He's, he's in a sense, inviting both, both of them to see uh, their trials. Poor, do you see your trials? Rich, do you see your trials? He first addresses the poor in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And that's all he says to the poor. It's simple as that. Boast in your exaltation in the midst of your trial, your poverty. And I think the brevity there is because for the poor, what constitutes trials and um, difficulty and suffering, I mean, that's pretty immediate. It's pretty clear. The difficulties and challenges of the poor are felt pretty immediately, aren't they? And therefore, um, at the same time, one's dependence on God and trusting in God's provision and their steadfast clinging to the Lord, that's also felt more immediately. The joy of knowing God in the midst of trials is felt more immediately by the poor. And so James keeps it short. You know the joy of the, the poor widow who gave up the two copper coins and how Christ exalted her. You know that exaltation. You know how to boast in that. Your nearness to God in the absence of material wealth. You're, you're, you're more weightless as you draw near to the presence of God. You're that much more closer to the kingdom of God because that's the only security you got. So very concisely, yet very clearly, uh, James is communicating how for the poor, even the path of the poor is a sweet path that draws near to the Lord, yields Christian maturity and Christ-likeness. There's joy there, there's exaltation there, there's boasting there. And then he turns to the rich, and he's got a lot more say to the rich, doesn't he? Why is that? Well, because the rich are more prone to be blind to their spiritual poverty, to miss their spiritual neediness in their material wellness, because it is harder for them to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle. So James takes extra care to caution the rich, those trying to become rich. Do you know your state of humiliation, not exaltation? Humiliation, in a sense, like the poor, but more than the poor. 
Do you know that you're about to be brought low? In a sense, like the poor, but in another sense, more than the poor. Do you know that you're about to face many trials of various kinds, in a sense, like the poor, but in another sense, more than the poor, because you're more blind to your trials? Um, and so James is making further implications here for the, for the rich. He stressed the importance of wisdom in the previous passage, and it seems like he's saying, he's making it pretty clear for the rich, um, their richness is not evidence of wisdom. Richness doesn't mean exaltation, but humiliation. There's no positive correlation between having money and having wisdom. If anything, he's implying there's a negative correlation. And of course, we're not talking about simply having money. I think you know that. We're talking about loving money and depending on money and finding all your kingdom security in money, meaning you know, this feeling like you are living in this castle with high walls, strong bricks, and threats are very far from you. You have a king who protects you from your enemies. That kind of kingdom security. To find that and to search for that security in money is actually the opposite of wisdom. And unlike how a lot of people with money actually think their greatest problem in life is not the absence of money or the dwindling of money or the, the threat of money being stolen, it's actually the presence of money that brings forth more problems. And that's already true, I mean, just on a purely sort of empirical level um, that I think even secular people can very much acknowledge. More money, more problems. Uh, I don't know what they want from me, but it's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. That's what I grew up with when I, in the 90s. And James would be saying, right, James would say to Mr. Biggie, uh, you're absolutely right. <laughs> with, with more money comes more problems. That much is empirical, but... Here's, here's the spiritual side to that. The spiritual trial you face there uh, is that you're completely blind to how all of your money and all the things that you can acquire through money, they are like flower that wither away. They're like flesh that pass away. Do you see that, rich people? Are you humbled by that? When the rich you pass and wither away under the scorching heat of life, the trials of life, suffering of life, and whatever beauty you've acquired through your money wither away, what's left of you? Who are you? Where's your security? Where's your beauty? Living, therefore, with money as your building blocks of your kingdom is not a mark of wisdom. It's a mark of foolishness. It's... And it's not a mark of your longevity, but um, the brevity of your life. In a sense, that makes you poorer than the poor. Because the poor are desperate and needy for God, because they got nothing else. So they know. They know how to cling to the, the kingdom of God, not kingdom of material wealth. Are you wealthier than they are? Are you more secure than they are? Are you humbled yet? 
Are you beginning to therefore relocate um, your sense of safety away from money and relocating that in your God? So James is taking what he said in the passage earlier that we looked at last week, he's, and he's making it a lot more tangible, a lot more explicit. Right? He said, right, get more wisdom and be steadfast in your trials, and let's apply that to your financial life. He's getting in our business. And, and he also understands, as a, I think a, he, he's a good pastor, he's a good counselor. He, he sees the challenges that Christians will face as they try to live in this wisdom, the things that will war against their soul. As you try to focus on internal beauty by the wisdom of God, you, you find the, the temptation to focus on external beauty is right there. It's right there. Competing with wisdom. When you want to focus on your spiritual wellness and your nearness to God, your enjoyment of God, your desire for material wellness, material comforts and pleasures are right there competing against that desire. You want to look to what's eternal, fix your eyes on things above, and your fixation on what is temporary, temporal, is right there competing in your heart. James is giving us a a wise look, overview of our spiritual lives and spiritual warfare. He doesn't just say, go get wisdom, good luck. (laughs) He he says, oh, here's, here's what gets in the way of wisdom, by the way. Beware. Watch out. And, and be, be aware of where your true joy lies, where your true beauty lies, where your true value is found. Make sure it's not found in your riches because they're not true riches. Find it where the poor find it, in Christ, who's rescued us from this passing, withering, perishing world. Access true richness the way poor people access it, by grace, without price with grace without price. In Christ who who was rich and yet became poor for our sake and paid the price for our adoption, our forgiveness and our adoption, access true richness through him. Access true beauty through him. Access your true value through him. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. And remember, uh, your goal is still Christian maturity. It's still Christ-likeness. And you're no more Christ-like than the poor because of your your wealth. Um, And in fact, what contributes to our Christ-likeness oftentimes are our trials, our steadfastness under trials. Access true richness in the richness of Christ. Um, Then... James moves into the matter of blessedness. And in the Greek, blessedness really translates into happiness. He's talking about happiness. And I think in that, he's anticipating a question coming from the Christians he's addressing. James, or Apostle James, Pastor James, what about my happiness? Is it, is it so wrong to pursue a life of happiness? And what James begins to then unpack for us is, um, no, you're wired for happiness, you're wired for blessedness, but you've got to find what true happiness means, what true blessedness means, and not chase after the, what, what the world is falsely advertising. So he says in verse 12, 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay. So he reiterates the same theme he did earlier in the, in the chapter, remain steadfast under trial, not in the absence of trial, but even under trial, right? Trials are they're a matter of when, not if, right? James is saying what he said earlier. Here, here, he's adding something else, isn't he? Whereas earlier James was saying trials produce steadfastness, genuine faith in the present, he's now adding there's a reward after the trials. He's turning your attention to what comes after the trials, something you anticipate post-trials. And in that, I think you find the Bible's definition of true blessedness or happiness. It's not the absence of trials and suffering in the here and now. If that's your marker for happiness, guess what? You will never be happy. Not on this side of heaven. If your marker for happiness and blessedness is living in a high enough castle where suffering and trial cannot touch you, you will never be happy. It's this assurance that whatever the circumstances in the present, there is, one, the reward of maturity in Christ-likeness through your trials, even in the midst of trials. That's, that's the first part. And the second part of this that he's turning our attention to is there's also the crown of life that comes after, the crown jewel awaiting you in the end, and therefore living with eternity in your mind. Your eternity will be a good one, and resting in that is blessedness. That's on the one hand very important to us in this sort of existential sense, coming to grips with what our existence here actually is. It's temporary, and it's really dissatisfactory. (laughs) Come to grips with that, acknowledge that, accept that. The Bible is as, it's as realist as it gets. Existentially, therefore, we are a people who believe, like these ancient people used to believe, we belong more in eternity than in the present. Therefore, we look more forward to eternity than life here, tomorrow, next month. This is who you are existentially if you are a believer of Christ. This is your worldview. This is your faith. This is your religion. Eternity is what's on your mind. And you long for it. You teach your heart to long more for it. You teach your children to long more for it. That true happiness does not lie here, but elsewhere. Not in our earthly marriage, but in our heavenly one with the Lord not in our earthly family, earthly homes, but in our heavenly ones. Does not mean, this does not mean that the things we do here don't matter. They do matter. Paying the bills matter. Getting into college and grad school, they matter. Financial stability, they matter. I think we just need to finish that sentence with this added clause, but there's eternity. But there's eternity, but there's eternity, but there's eternity. Whether that's us talking to ourselves, our spouse, or our children. You know, kids, I really want you to succeed in school. I want you to do well on this test. I want you to thrive. I want you to be healthy. But there's eternity. 
I hope you do well in your job interview next week. I will pray for you. I hope you succeed. But remember, there's eternity. <laughs> and that gives us something incredibly practical in the here and now. To have something you're anticipating on the other side, a reward that brings you practical hope, comfort in the present, to empower you to face the trials in the present, trials of any kind. Trials that are, again, a matter of when, not if. Even when they do come at you, um, for you to understand that losing your wealth or losing your health even um, does not mean that you lose your blessedness because there's eternity. That's wisdom. That's seeing life through the eyes of wisdom, seeing what is yet unseen, what is coming, what is not yet here, what you can anticipate, to, to be able to hear God telling you it's coming. It's there. It's coming. I remember some years ago when Lynn and I were stressing about our finances around this time of the year, and she was, she was worried, and I, you know, the realization hit me, so I, I encouraged her by saying, Honey, it's okay. It's okay. It's coming. And she said, What's coming? And I said, Our tax return. Our tax return's coming. And she said, oh, right. And that helped. It, we didn't hold the money in our hands. We didn't know the exact time it would arrive. We just knew it's coming. And that helped. Helps to know something's on its way. To know you are therefore secure even when you're insecure. And that's just with a finite reward. That, that's with a check that's here and gone tomorrow. Right, married people, parents, right? It's like, it's here and then it's gone. Where, where, where did the money go? What if the reward was infinite and eternal and never ceasing, never draining? Wouldn't that comfort, that hope, and that peace, and that security be much greater? The only question is, do you believe it's coming? Do you believe the word of God that says the crown of life awaits you? Along with that crown, the whole kingdom. It's yours in Christ who became poor for your sake. Your blessedness is there awaiting you and it's coming. Do you believe that? You have no problem believing in Uncle Sam and the IRS. That helps you. What about the word of God that says the crown of life is coming? The kingdom of God, your eternal inheritance is coming. That's true blessedness. That's true happiness through the eyes of wisdom. And then he closes off just showing us a bit more about true goodness. Seeing true goodness through the eyes of wisdom. He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Why this hard, sudden pivot to temptations? Why are we talking about trials? Why are we talking about temptations now? Are they the same things? No, they're not the same things. But with trials often come temptations to sin. And so wisdom has to 
come in and address that. With financial difficulty, for example, comes the temptation to become greedy and ungrateful and covetous and, and also doubtful of God's provision. Doubtful, if God is good, will he take care of me? Does he know my needs? Will he meet them at the right time? It's tempting to doubt God's goodness in the midst of trials. And any trials, really, not just financial. With suffering or death of a loved one comes the temptation to doubt the the love of God or his resurrection hope. When we encounter injustice, we can be tempted to question God's justice. When we feel the trials of loneliness, we can be tempted to lust, etc., etc. With trials come temptations. But most basically, the temptation is to doubt this very basic and yet fundamental statement. God is good. God is good. And that he is good all the time. And that all the time he is good. James says, no one should say I am being tempted by God. And if you're thinking, well, I've never never thought that. I never blamed God for any of my problems, my sin issues, or circumstances of my life or my trials. Never blamed God for any of that. This doesn't seem relevant to me. Well, let me put it this way. Have you ever complained or grumbled about your station in life or the people in your life knowing God is sovereign and he placed you there? He placed you next to those people. He challenges you to, he's the one who's challenging you to love those people that you don't want to love. Have you scorned your neighbors? In that, do we not say, God is doing this to me. I don't get why. He's supposed to arrange things and make them fit into my preferences, and yet here I am, people I don't want to love, situations I don't want to be in, It may be subtle, it may be indirect, but in various ways, I think you and I say this. God is the one tempting me. God is the one causing the hardships I'm experiencing. God God is the one causing my afflictions. It's not this sin-riddled world. It's not the sins of others. It's not even my own sins. It's God. I'm not the one at fault may not be your articulated belief, but I think it might be your instinct. And mine. Therefore, right, we blame shift, get angry, we feel a sense of entitlement to do all things for my sake, for my own good, for my own pleasure. And James is saying all of this stems from this deeper presupposition God is not good. He tempts you, He afflicts you. And of course, the the flip side of this is, I'm good. I am good. Or I must become good, or I must get better. It's about me. I must be God. I must be good. I must be better all the time. But James is, again, he's speaking at a very deep, pastoral heart level, spiritual level in verse 14 when he says each person is actually tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, then desire when it conceives gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown bring forth, brings forth death. 
James says, no, no, you're, you're not good. Your heart is not good. Your heart is, in fact, like Jeremiah says, desperately sick. You barely understand it yourself. You don't understand how you're, the things that you feel gravitated towards are actually causing you to wander away from true happiness, true blessedness, and God's goodness. Trials don't cause this. Trials reveal this. It reveals what you believe in your heart of hearts. Like if I'm, if I'm walking around with a cup of coffee in my hand and if one of my daughters were to just run at me, run into me, and I spill the coffee, it wouldn't make sense for me to say she caused the coffee, but she revealed it, right? And when you get hit with trials in life and you respond with entitlement, anger, frustration, grumbling, complaining, discontentment, trials did not cause that in you. Trials are revealing what's been in your heart all along. When I am tempted to sin, James is saying it's ultimately because my heart drives me, ultimately because my heart drives me to it, not my circumstances, not my neighbors, and definitely not my God. It's my desire, it's what I love. It's because I love my idols more than I love the Lord. So, verse 16, he, he summarizes it this way, don't be deceived, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. See through the eyes of wisdom. Don't be deceived about your own heart and don't be deceived about where true goodness lies. That it comes from another source other than yourself, comes from something other than money. The source of true goodness is God. Come back to him. Return to the Lord and repent before him. That's what wisdom says. Wisdom says no more complaining, grumbling. Let's repent. Let's repent of our hearts. Our hearts that are seizing control. Our hearts that say, I am good all the time, all the time, I am good. And if not, I must get better at being good. It's on me. Wisdom says, return to the Lord, see that he is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And all the goodness rests in him. All the goodness you'll ever need is found in him. Ask him for mercy. Ask him to give you a new heart that loves him. Ask him for a new heart that desires after him. Ask him for a clean heart, a healed heart. And ask him for the heart of Christ. Wisdom sees God as good all the time. Wisdom sees God as good all the time. I hope you'll preach that to your own heart and remind your children of that too. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Because there's wisdom there. True goodness lies with God. And so you begin to then pursue that goodness because we're wired for goodness. We gravitate towards goodness. We, we were created in the image of goodness. You're wired to go after it, so go after God. 
In the past, you may have gone after money. In the past, you have, may have gone after security that money can buy, comfort that money can bring. But now, uh, pursue the source of true goodness in God. Pursue God. Live for him. It, it is God who is good. And so he, he summarizes it this way in verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down. In case you missed above, he says, it's, it's coming down. From the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's not something that you climb up to get. It's not something from within. It's not something from your workplace, your bank account, your degrees. It comes down. Look up, it's coming down from the Father of lights. And with him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. This, this is a goodness that does not expire. Look to him. And here's your access to it in verse 18, of his own will. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's not because we deserved it. It's not because we earned it. It's not because we're doing better than others. God of his own will brought us forth this way, brought us near to him by the word of his truth. He's given us this word of truth today, just now, um, to remind you he is good, to remind you to taste and see uh, that he is good so you would pursue his goodness, remain in his goodness, rest in his goodness. This is wisdom. This is where wisdom takes us. It takes us to true richness, takes us to true blessedness, and takes us to God's true goodness. And we have it all in Jesus Christ, who says, come and eat and drink without price. I paid it all. I've paid it all. I became poor, so you will be this rich. Rest in that today. Rest in him today. Rest in that every day. And walk in wisdom. Walk in the wisdom of the Lord. And let your real faith meet real life and real trials on this side of heaven. Until you get what's coming. Until you receive the crown of life. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. Thank you for the reminder of the amazing grace you've uh, poured upon us uh, through your Son and the promise of your kingdom, the promise of eternal inheritance, that is to come. Uh, God, will you begin to transfer our, all of our hopes, all of our trust, our joy, our peace to that kingdom so we would put our treasures there. And Lord, even as we, as we interact with our neighbors and go out and do things that you've called us to do vocationally and academically, Lord, um, Remind us there's eternity ahead. And, and when we get derailed uh, situationally or relationally, when we feel like uh, things aren't going right, um, bring us this comfort. Give us this wisdom. Um, your kingdom where everything goes right is coming. And we have citizenship there forever because of your son. 
Help us to have true, true Sabbath rest in that today and um, find our, our peace there. And with that, send us out, Lord, into the world to be your ambassadors, your messengers, your salt and light, and to faithfully, therefore, walk with you in all the places and all the relationships that you've called us into. Help us to endure. Help us to endure trials and suffering uh, with, with your grace and with your peace. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.